This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Druck, and today we are talking about menopause. This is the second in our series of three episodes about menopause, and we're talking to the lovely Dr. Juliet Balfour. I'm delighted to have her with me joining on Zoom. And this episode, we're going to talk about HRT options. So if you're someone that can't have HRT, we have the episode for you. It's coming up next. So episode three is all about when you can't have HRT. And Dr. Juliet Balfour has joined us before. She's um, come to Shine Connect and we did a menopause session there, which was brilliant. So I'm really delighted to have her back with all our expertise. And um, Dr. Balfour, could you let me know what got you started in the area of menopause? Well, I've been a GP for over 30 years now and always had an interest in women's health. Um, and I'm old enough to have been giving HRT out to people years ago. Um, <laughs> and we had a study that says it was really dangerous and everyone stopped prescribing HRT and wanting HRT. So back sort of um, 2015, we had a nice guidelines that came up, out about HRT. And then I started to become a, do more studying on that and become a menopause specialist. So I now work mainly as a menopause specialist and I run the um, Somerset NHS Menopause Clinic. So that's for sort of patients in Somerset who aren't are struggling or needing help uh, with their menopausal symptoms. And if their GP can't help them, they, they come and see me. Lovely. And I think that is something, what you raised is that the thinking on HRT has changed. The research has changed. Even the hormones have changed in this time. So would you say it's worth people just, you know, if they were told something, maybe they were diagnosed a long time ago, just to kind of check back in with kind of where things are at now for them? Um, certainly. So some basic things haven't changed. So unfortunately, we know that for most women with breast cancer or women who've got a hormone-dependent cancer, really HRT is not the first-line option. And we've got lots of other things that I'm really glad you're going to be talking about next episode because mm-hmm. You do have lots of other non-hormonal prescribable medications that really can help with some of the symptoms of the menopause. So it's worth talking about those. Uh, One thing that really has changed is now that we know that local estrogen, so that's very low doses of estrogen applied vaginally, can be used in most people uh, and even women who've had breast cancer in the past. Um, there's, there's the group who are on aromatase inhibitors, so that's letrozole and estrozole, exemestane. There's more debate about that and sometimes we have to change their medication, but uh, lots and lots of women can benefit from locally estrogen. And I think that's that's something we didn't realise until fairly recently. And so that's, if you are getting those sort of symptoms, which we'll probably talk yes. about in the <laughs> that's something definitely that it's worth coming to talk about. Yeah, because I think it is, it, it's an area that's definitely worth keeping an eye on because of things like that. And, you know, something like, you know, dryness and painful sex or, you know, feeling like you're constantly going to have a, you know, a bladder infection, um, getting up multiple times in the night to go to the bathroom, which disrupts sleep. Like all of that can be helped or eased with topical estrogen. And so, yeah, it can be really useful just to... Yeah, keep an eye on on what's going on and what the what the thinking is with things. So one of the the biggest questions that I think that I've heard. So I've sourced a lot of these questions from the Shine Facebook group, um, and so a lot of them 
said, how do I know I'm in menopause? So a lot of people have had things like, you know, their uterus removed or they've had a stem cell transplant or they have PCOS or they're on a contraceptive that they don't have any periods. And they've been told either they're likely to be in menopause or no one's really told them anything. And they're like, how do I know? What would you, what would you say? Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good question, and it can be very tricky. Um, and so we have lots of young people who are uh, have a, a menopause induced by their treatment. So yes, all the things you said were chemotherapy or radiotherapy that can damage the ovaries. Some of those women are going to have menopausal symptoms, but then their ovaries are going to recover, and they will their periods will come back so they're no longer in menopause and then they'll have a natural menopause later on when they're older. Mm-hmm. Other women, that their ovaries never kick back into action and some people have their ovaries out and then obviously that's irreversible. Um, and then as you say, some people might be on contraceptive pills or other, other methods like the implant or the Mirena that, that stop your periods. So, so what's happening with the periods, or if you haven't got a uterus, no periods at all again, is not always... Um, always a good indicator so we we look at symptoms and there's lots and lots of different symptoms of the menopause and it and it's joining the dots and put putting the picture together to see um if somebody might be in menopause and we in younger people we do sometimes do a blood test called fsh mm-hmm. to uh, uh, to see what's happening with fh fsh level um and that can help if it's if it's consistently high but a lot of women actually, they have lots of menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms, um, but their FSH is normal. But in fact, they are coping with um, fluctuating and low levels of estrogen. They can benefit from, from thinking about HRT if it's possible. So the on blood history. test is is sometimes useful, but it's not perfectly accurate. So it depends on the day that you're in there. Absolutely. The FSH can be very variable. And in fact, if someone is aged 45 or over and getting menopausal symptoms, there's there's no need to do FSH because it's not going to change what we do. Um, and you know, one day it might be normal, the next day it might be really raised. So, so blood tests on their own aren't a terribly good marker. But when women are younger, when women are under 45 and particularly under 40, and we want to make a definitive diagnosis if it's not obvious, and quite often it is barn door obvious, but if it's not obvious, we will sometimes do the blood test just to see if that gives us an indication. Yeah, it's so tricky, I think, because so many of the symptoms, either of the cancer, the treatment, or the long-term treatment can really fuse into a lot of the menopause symptoms, things like brain fog, aches and pains, you know, in the joints and the muscles, you know, um, even hot flushes and things like that. Can you tell me some of the, like when you're looking at someone to see if they're in menopause, what are the top symptoms that you look for? So, so first we do look, if if they're still having periods, we look for a change in the pattern. Mm very common for the pattern to change before the last period. And just a quick thing about definition. So a menopause is a retrospective diagnosis when you haven't had a natural period for a year. But obviously, we've talked about lots of women are not having periods anyway. But once you haven't had a natural period for a year, 
we say you're, you're menopausal and then after that you're postmenopausal. Um, the perimenopause is a period of time with the fluctuating hormones before that last period. And that can last up to 10 years beforehand. So it could be a long period where you're getting symptoms. You might be getting reg still regular periods actually, but you're getting symptoms um, that can indicate a lack of estrogen. I tend to divide it into the psychological symptoms and the physical symptoms. And often the psychological symptoms are the more worrying because women don't necessarily realize it's down to their hormones right. and they worry that they're getting dementia um, or and, and they then have you know difficulty coping at work because their brain is just not working as, as they they like. So yeah, brain fog is a one, top one up there. You're just, you're, you're, you're not thinking so well, your memory is poor, you're difficulty finding the right word for some something or the right name for a person. And very common is, is the anxiety and depression symptoms. So people can get much more anxious. Um, a common one is we can get panic attacks. A common one is actually being really worried about driving. Mm. And a lot of women say, I don't want to go on the motorway anymore. They get very worried about that. So anxiety, panic attacks, low mood, loss of joy is a common thing, which is just, just feeling flat and, yeah. and, and looking forward to stuff and becoming more emotional and easily tearful and I'm, I'm just giving I'm just listing you all the symptoms now because they're all important and they're you know different ones happen you know with different people um and reduced co concentration and reduced confidence and self-esteem so they're sort of the, the the common psychological symptoms um and then you've got the, the physical symptoms so some people get hot flushes or or just hot or hot or or night sweats some people get sweats in the day and night some people get flushes day and night but no sweating but some combination of feeling your temperature control is completely uh, gone to pot um so um and of often that then leads to poor sleep because you're waking up at night feeling hot or drenched in sweat uh, and some women actually have poor sleep without hot flushes or night sweats so that's a really common symptom that i look out for so often you go to sleep okay mm -hmm. and then at some point in the night you wake up just like someone switched a light bulb on in your brain and you're awake for an hour two hours before you can eventually get back to sleep again and of course that impacts on how you feel the next day your energy levels how you're going to cope with work um and, you know is, is a massive uh, has a massive effect on quality of life and then there's lots of other physical symptoms like palpitations you mentioned aching aching muscles painful joints dryness everything dries up so drier thinner hair and dry eyes and dry ears and dry mouth and dry itchy skin lots of people get really itchy skin and then we've talked a little bit about local estrogen and that's related to the symptoms you get vaginally and and your urinary symptoms so your the tissues of your vagina can get drier and more irritable and 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 the, the vulva, so the bit on the outside can get dry and itchy and sore. And our bladder gets much more sensitive. So you, you can get this feeling of going to have infection all the time or actually getting recurrent infections and passing urine more often and having to rush to the loo. This classic thing that you're out, you're out shopping. As soon as you get to your front door and turn the mm -hmm. key in the door, you think, ah, I've got to rush to the loo. That's a classic one. And then I think, as you mentioned, waking up in the middle of night to pass urine. Mm-hmm. Again, again, another reason that's affecting the sleep. Uh, so there's all these different symptoms and, and just just 
joy of joys, just to throw all of that on top of all of that lack of libido. So loss of sex drive. That's another very common one. It's and just the- evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, could it, it could it be any more comprehensive, right? Like it, it can be anywhere in the body. It can be. And there's lots of ones I haven't mentioned. So occasionally some people get tinnitus buzzing in the yeah. ear. Palpitations actually is not that unusual, especially in the middle of the night, feeling faint or dizzy, restless legs when your legs moving around all the time at night. You know, there's lots and lots of symptoms, but the the biggest ones I think that people need to be aware of are the psychological symptoms and and that you and that the poor sleep. We might be able to do something about that. Um, yeah. And where we talk about weight gain around the middle. That's oh. the other. <laughs> joy of joys, right? That that's <laughs> that circle, that band, that band that develops absolutely, and that's. But basically, as we lose our estrogen, and as we get older, our we lose our muscle mass, um, and our metabolic rate goes down, and so um, and so the the amount of calories we're burning up just sitting doing nothing goes down, um, and our our bodies when we're losing estrogen, our bodies are desperate for estrogen, so they produce more fat especially abdominal fat because that sort of fat produces a weak form of estrogen so our body is um, programmed to put that abdominal weight on so that we get a bit of this weak estrogen in our body to help with some of these symptoms so if we just carry on as we get older or post-menopause at whatever age you're post-menopause uh if we carry on doing the sort of the amount of exercise we always always used to do and um, and ate what we always used to do. Unfortunately, we will just carry on putting this weight on around the middle and just a little bit more every year, unfortunately. It is tricky. And especially when, you know, so many of us are having um, this happen in, twen- in 20s and 30s and you're looking at your body in the mirror and you're like, oh, no, like, yeah, I'd understand that if I was 50, but like, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, so one of the things that really helped me actually was understanding why that was there and I love the description you just gave of your body is actually trying to make a little bit more hormones for you so Mm. I started sort of reframing that and like you know holding my stomach and being like okay you're trying to do a good job (laughs) Um, and also that that band is to do with cortisol which is released when we're stressed and you know what? There's not much more stressful than full-on menopause, is there? I mean, like, it just causes so much stress. So you think that's like a double whammy to the to the waistband. Um, Absolutely. And if you're if if you have a menopause that's induced suddenly. Mm-hmm. Because- cancer treatment or having your ovaries out that can be worse than menopause that a lot of women have when they're older because it's very dramatic it's very sudden suddenly if you haven't gone eastern around uh, um and you're not necessarily being given a replacement for that you know people can get really horrible symptoms so you know it, it, it it's if you if you're struggling as a young person with menopause much more than your mother did you know that's possibly because you're having a completely different experience you're having a much worse experience and every woman is different you know cancer yes. or no cancer you know we all hear of people who sail through the menopause we all hear of people who have a horrific time um and so it's a very individual thing but it, it is well known that the, the menopause induced by by cancer treatment it can be pretty horrible yeah and i think that is something to remember so that like i think sometimes we're so geared up to power through you know and we're like okay we're doing this you know and almost like not giving kind of actually 
this is this can be tough, you know, at any point in life, but especially when it was years before your time. Um, I want to kind of go in a little bit deeper to some of these um, symptoms. And we have a comment from Abby. I got to an aisle and it was really busy. And I just thought to myself, I can't do this. And I had to leave and I had to walk out the shop and I sat in the car and I cried for about, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. Nothing triggered it. There was nothing that had happened, but I just got that overwhelming sense of I got to get out. I need to get out. I need I need space. I need to I just need to be alone. Do you hear things like that a lot? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, people who haven't had, never had panic attacks before and they do start getting them, um, you know, around the time of the menopause. Absolutely. And it, and panic attacks, especially your first one, can be terrifying. Mm. You know, when women end up in um, A&E thinking they're having a heart attack um, because once you have this little cascade of adrenaline around your body in it, then it makes your heart beat fast and makes you feel short of breath and makes you feel worse. And the whole thing is a vicious, vicious circle. So, yeah, they can panic attacks. Can be horrible, um, but yeah, the lack of estrogen can certainly do that. I'm afraid. And why does it do that? Like, do you know how? <laughs> I, I can't tell you the exact mechanism, but we know we've got we've got estrogen receptors in cells all over our body. So you know, and, and so the the lack of estrogen and also the flat fluctuating levels can can affect us as well. Sort of sort of some sometimes having a lot, sometimes not having much, and just sort of, instead of being in a nice regular cycle with our menstrual cycle and, and you know when we have regular cycles we're aware we feel differently different mm-hmm. parts of the cycle but then sometimes it, in perimenopause these estrogen levels can be so extreme and, and that 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 really causes a problem as well yeah and i think obviously like you know scanxiety and concern um post-diagnosis of you know how side effects are going, you know, possible recurrence. Like there's a lot of things that are already very panic inducing. So yeah, those those panic attacks seem to, um, I know I've had a fair few um, somewhere. I was hugging a tree on the high road, <laughs> just holding on with the whole street spinning. And I was like, okay, I know, I know what's happening here. Luckily I knew from... Um, my work as a yoga teacher, what was physiologically going on in my body and I knew how to breathe. But it's still, it's still scary, you know, because it's very physical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everybody needs to be taught techniques really on on how to manage them. Um, Ideally, ideally before one comes, you know. (laughs) Ideally, I mean, and I don't know, Hopefully things are moving on with the with the with the post cancer care. I mean, I know everyone's you met everyone's so keen on treating the cancer and getting rid of the cancer that often people are then left to cope with the sort of all this sort of anxiety and the oh my treatment stopped help nobody's looking after me you know all that lots of psychological issues to cope with with when you've sort of come out the other end of your cancer treatment and ideally we'd have everyone would see a counsellor and have some time to chat and just learn some techniques to cope when you're feeling overwhelmed and anxious. But I mean, you know more than me what, what's actually happening out there. I don't know whether that's something that's being offered to people. Sometimes. Um, and I think there's a real feeling of because of that, not knowing necessarily am I in menopause and the confusion of symptoms. So I think this is really useful, kind of seeing the breadth of them and especially the psychological ones I think aren't spoken about. It's just mm-hmm. very much hot flushes. Um but actually knowing if you have a very flat affect or, um, you know, I think 
sometimes there's a lot of guilt that you aren't experiencing this joy in life, right? Because you're supposed to be, you know, um, either if you have a long-term cancer or an incurable cancer or a cancer that's gone, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, there's this pressure. Are you seizing every moment? Are you loving life? But actually the menopause can suck that sense of joy, that sense of self, um, with all those psychological things. And for me, it felt like um, a Dementor from Harry Potter hanging over me, just sucking oh. the life force up and out yeah. and all the lights in the world going out. Like there was no possibility, no, you know, no, nothing on the horizon. And I think when people are experiencing that post-cancer, there is this real, or, or, or when they have cancer, th- this guilt or this lack of like what's happening, like what's wrong with me. Um, mm. And so it can be really useful to know that, yeah, hormones can be doing that. Yeah, you know, you're recovering from a massive trauma and getting used to your life post-cancer. Um, plus you've got your hormones doing who knows what. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important, I think, that, yeah, that everyone is aware, you know, depending on their treatment, you know, whether there's a chance that their treatment is going to put them into menopause and then whether it's likely to be a permanent menopause or whether it's likely to be a temporary menopause and they're going to have to go through this all over again. Right. Um, um, And then it's very important to to then be given advice about how to manage these symptoms, um, both, you know, with with, with lifestyle and the non-hormonal options and for some people, the hormonal options. So it's it's really important to be, you know, forearmed is forewarned. It's it's very useful for patients to be aware that what might happen Mm. to them um, so that they not not to say it's not necessarily going to happen. Um, You know, some people basically some people have their ovaries taken out. And they don't have any symptoms at all. Whereas other people, about a, a month or two after they have their ovaries out, they crash into yeah. the most horrific menopause. So everybody's different. Yes. <laughs> and that's why I've had all my years as a GP, you, you just can't predict who's going to do what or who's going to do well or who's go- with, with one treatment or another treatment or who's going to like one treatment or another treatment. It's so individual. Yes. And we've got one more comment um, about some of the psychological things from Rebecca. I can't concentrate, I can't see clearly. And of course, as ever, when you're living with stage four um, cancer, there's never just one thing going right. on. There's always like, you know, you're dealing with the side effects of your cancer treatment. And um, at that particular time, it was it was winter, it was dark outside, it was cold, it was wet. We were going into that second winter lockdown. There was just, there was like so many things kind of happening. And I think that that all, impacted on this like head fog and just this inability to really concentrate and and that affected my energy definitely affected my mood I was feeling like I was like crying in the morning most mornings and I'm not I'm generally you know you have moments like that but I'm generally wasn't like that so you really heard Rebecca like it's like a personality change and brain function change so how how debilitating can that be? Well, we we know that lots of women give up work uh, if they're going through the perimenopause or menopause um, because of the psychological symptoms and the physical symptoms too. So, you know, if you're, if you're not sleeping, you're not going to feel you're doing a good job. You know, women find it very difficult. The the, the memory side of things and, the, as she mentioned, the concentration side of things. Yeah. If you just 
concentrate on stuff um and and a lot of women either don't go for promotions or they demote themselves or they actually change jobs or actually stop jobs and we know that we know that one in ten women who are working during their menopause actually give up work because of their menopausal symptoms so so it's really important again to recognize that you're not going mad you haven't got dementia this is the brain fog could be related to menopause and, and the great thing about that great thing about the brain fog and those sort of symptoms is you you do get through them your brain does readjust so if, if you can't have hrt it, you're not going to be stuck in that awful brain fog forever if you can't you get through it and you come out the other side uh, that's an important thing to say i, I that is very reassuring <laughs> um, i'm like 10 years in and still still naming words are um they just disappear from me you know i really yeah. really have to think so hard and then thinking so hard makes them go even further out of my brain um mm-hmm. so if somebody is experiencing these things and they've had a cancer that is not a hormone cancer and they think they're eligible for HRT, who makes that decision? Is it the oncologist? Is it the GP? Is it a menopause clinic? Like if somebody wants to have a chat, who who would you recommend that they talk to you first? So that's a really, that's a really good uh, question. And I will just say anything I say at the moment is a general thing because any, you know, anyone who's listening to this, I don't know your particular cancer and your particular details and what I'm saying might not apply to you. So this is a general comment. Um, but yes, yeah, so if someone has had uh, cancer that, uh, that, that that is not breast cancer or ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer, so none of, none of those cancers, and it is not known to be a hormone sensitive cancer. So if you weren't given any treatment to to uh, stop your ovaries or you weren't given medication to shut your ovaries off. Um, if you've had a non-hormonal cancer, you can first talk talk to your GP. So I mean, it's we have lots of GPs who are brilliant at menopause care and some GPs who aren't quite so up to date. So it's certainly worth talking to your GP first. And if you're still under an oncologist, you, you can have a chat with them and just, just check that they're happy too. Um, but if it's complicated, if you've got lots of other complicated things as well, the GP might not be happy to to prescribe. And then ideally, you'd be referred to a menopause specialist. Um, So there are NHS menopause uh, clinics dotted around the country, um, but there aren't enough of them, unfortunately. Some some counties don't have a menopause clinic at all. So there's nothing in Cornwall, there's nothing in Devon. I've got, I've run the one in Somerset, there's one in Dorset. There's lots more closer to London, but there aren't enough. But you can... If you go on the British Menopause Society website, um, you can uh, press this find a specialist link and you have to change this private and NHS option. So you just put the NHS option in and that will show you where all the NHS menopause, specialist menopause clinics are. Amazing. And, yeah. And you can ask your GP for a referral. Now, your, your GP might not realise uh, that menopause specialist clinics exist because um they're not terribly well publicized um and you might have to travel quite a long way and at the moment because of post-covid there are long waiting lists for for everything gynae specialist menopause everything but um you can if because there's lots of other conditions that going back to that study 20 years ago that said ah hrt is really dangerous there are lots of women 
who are, have been told in the last 20 years they can't, un, women who haven't had cancer, completely unrelated to cancer, but they've been told they can't have HRT because of they get bad migraines or they're overweight or they've got high blood pressure or if they've had a history of blood clot or they've, um, or they've got a strong family history of something, they've been told they can't have HRT. And in fact, with the knowledge we've got now, and especially seeing a menopause specialist, they will be told actually they, it's so safe to have HRT. And so the same thing applies to anyone who's had can, a non-hormone related cancer. The, the GP might be a bit cautious before because of that. And then also think, well, ooh, but she's also got a migraine. Oh, she's also got high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And they might be worried about uh, referring, uh, just prescribing without advice. Um, but so yeah, referral to the menopause specialist is a good idea in that case. And then if you're someone who's had a hormone dependent cancer, it gets much more controversial and more, more difficult. Um, and we would try all the other non-hormonal options first. But if you are really, really struggling and you really, really wanted HRT, the ideal way to discuss that is in a multidisciplinary meeting with a menopause specialist and your oncologist um, and, and the patient and and Again, some people are more high risk and some people more low risk. So very occasionally in one of those multidisciplinary meetings, if someone's desperate for HRT and their symptoms are really awful, between the specialists between them will be able to give the patient how much increased risk they might have and whether they want to take that risk and whether their their current quality of life is so bad that they want to try HRT. So HRT isn't a complete no for some with a hormone dependent cancer, but it is a very, it's kind of the last resort and it's a very much done on an individual basis with lots of specialist input. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect a GP to, to be able to, to sort of do that. So that mm-hmm. would definitely be a specialist referral. Um, but it just, yeah, very much it depends on the cancer and the patient and the patient's feelings and, and um, how bad the symptoms are. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's really good. You know that there's a place to go to find if there is a clinic, um, and <laughs> and to know that you know migraines and things like that aren't necessarily um, rule you out for having um, HRT. So, um, so what exactly is HRT? So, like, what is going on? I mean, it sounds like a holy grail of you know amazingness that's going to give you everything back. Does it? Um, some people it does. So we always say first, lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. That's really, really important. Whatever age you are, trying to get the lifestyle things right. Um, you know, so trying to get better sleep and eat healthy and exercise and reduce stress. Ha ha ha! Very tricky. Um, <laughs> um, and and so and not smoke and not drink too much and exercise. Um, so the, those are all the So they're really important. Whoever you are, whatever age you are, whether you can take HRT or not. So then HRT just stands for hormone replacement therapy and it's replacing those dwindling well that it's the estrogen is the most important hormone there and and so hrt is aiming to replace the estrogen that that you're losing or have lost most of um and so we usually give estrogen in in through the skin in a patch a gel or a spray and so estrogen is what patients need to try and help with these lots of these symptoms if you still got a uterus or a womb you also need progesterone because if we, if you just give estrogen to somebody with a with a uterus, the lining of the womb can build up and it can get thicker and thicker, and sometimes the cells can p- become abnormal and then actually develop into cancer of the uterus. So obviously we don't want that. So you have to have progesterone hormone or progesterone 
as well um, uh, to keep the lining of the womb thin. And then a small number of women will also benefit from testosterone. Um, there's been a lot, I don't know if people have seen the, the Vena programs uh, talking about testosterone. It's a bit of a media hype about testosterone at the moment. Not every woman needs testosterone. Um, our levels do reduce a bit as we get older, but they don't drop right down like our estrogen levels do. Um, but the guidelines are if someone's on estrogen through the skin and a good level and most of their menopausal symptoms are gone, but their libido, their sex drive is still really low, then we can add in a tiny dose of testosterone to see if it will help with libido. And some people, some women find it also helps with their mood and their stamina and, and their, their brain fog. We haven't actually got the scientific studies to prove, prove that testosterone does that for women, but anecdotally, some women, it does make a difference. But... I don't want people to get the idea that everybody needs testosterone, every woman needs testosterone, because that certainly isn't backed up by the evidence, but just a few people do. Do you think it's more likely that younger people would need the testosterone? Absolutely. Very good, good point. So if 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 a younger woman's had her ovaries out or was apt by radiotherapy or you know their ovaries aren't working, yes, their their testosterone levels are going to drop down much quicker and further than someone who's got functioning ovaries. And so we certainly if someone is on HRT and their libido and the, the energy is, is still not as they like it and they're on a good dose of estrogen, we would certainly they're 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 the cohort of patients that we would definitely be interested in in discussing testosterone with. And we don't tend to give some women say, well I can't I I can't have HRT because of my breast cancer. Can I just have testosterone? And unfortunately, no, not really. Um, because unfortunately if we haven't got enough estrogen uh, and we give testosterone, our bodies actually convert the testosterone to estrogen. Um, and we we think there may well also be testosterone receptors um, on breast cancer cells. We don't know. We don't test for them. Um, but at the moment, there have been some clinical trials giving a few people testosterone with an aromatase inhibitor, which stops that conversion of testosterone to estrogen. But it's not a it's not a widespread standard thing at the moment. I'm afraid. So sorry, that's that's not an option for anyone who's thinking. Ah, ah, I yeah. I I must admit, when I heard about testosterone, especially about libido, um, I was I was really excited. Um, but yes, you know, bodies are smart and they they do convert yeah. that. The other thing that I heard about testosterone that I thought was really useful was that testosterone is naturally released in our sleep um, at a certain stage of our deeper sleep. And when we drink alcohol, we don't go into that deeper stage of sleep. And so on nights that we have been drinking, we're not making as much testosterone, which might, you know, be that oomph that we need for the next day. And that has made me feel so much better on nights I don't drink. I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) maybe I'm like upping my testosterone. It's um, it's kind of a nice uh, you know, because I do like a glass of wine. We do have a question from Hannah. How do you know that the symptoms are managed? How much breakthrough symptoms are normal? So how do you know that the symptoms of menopause are managed? So yeah, whether you've had cancer or not, it can take a long time to get find the right type of HRT for the right dose for the right person. So it, it can be quite a, um, a long process. So uh, what, what complicates factors is that I've mentioned that for, for the estrogen, we like to give it the first line, we like to give it through the skin because that takes away any risk of blood clots and it can be a gel, a patch or a spray. 
But we find there's, there's different brands of patch and we find that some women absorb one brand better, that the estrogen from one brand or one patch might type of glue might stick better with one person compared to the other. And then we find some people do better on a gel and there's again, different brands of gel. And we find some people, they, for instance, don't absorb estrogen from a patch, but they absorb it fine from a gel and vice versa. Um, and then some people do very well on a very low dose patch. Some people need a really high dose patch. Um, and so that's a, a, a very variable factor. And then uh, also things can change with age, depending on what our ovaries are mm. doing. So, you know, in the perimenopause, we might be having fluctuating levels and then they settle down to a lower level. Um, so so at different times, people need a dif- different different um, doses. And we really go by mainly by how someone is feeling. And But quite a good indicator, if you are someone who used to get hot flushes and night sweats, when you start HRT, they're quite a useful, easy indicator of whether you're having enough in that they're often the first thing to get better. So if um, if somebody's still having hot flushes and night sweats on one dose of HRT, then we would go up and, and go up to the maximum dose slowly, you know, changing every every few months, increase, slowly increasing the dose till those are gone. And sometimes people need a higher dose to get rid of some of the other symptoms. But we do tend to, um, although we don't normally tend you know, when people are perimenopausal and not HRT, we don't tend to check the estrogen levels because, again, they fluctuate like the FSH levels. If someone's on the max and standard dose of HRT and not feeling that they're getting a benefit, we'll do an estrogen blood test, an estradiol blood test, just to see if they're absorbing it or not. Because if they've got a really good level of estrogen in their blood, but they're still getting symptoms, or we think, well, okay, they're they're getting plenty of estrogen. It's obviously not related to that. Mm. We've got to another cause. Um, so, um, so we don't... There's temptation, I think, at the moment. Think HRT is wonderful; it sorts everything out, um, and everybody's going to be made better by it. But obviously, lots of other things, as we said, are side effects from from medication or other things causing other things. I think the problem we've had before is that we've been testing for other things before we try HRT in mm. obviously perimenopausal women. Whereas I think now we probably need to. If, if there's no war, warning signs that everything's awful going on, anything awful going on, it's obviously quite a good idea to try the HRT first, see what's left, and then treat that, if you see what I mean. Yeah. As, uh, GPs, we've always got our antenna, antennae out for something that might be something else. So, so for instance, if a woman is sailed through the menopause and suddenly starts getting night sweats at 70, we think, gosh, well, that's probably not menopause. That could be Hodgkin's lymphoma or something like that. You know, we would, we mustn't, we've got, mustn't assume everything's due to the menopause. Equally, we need to think about menopause when people are developing, getting symptoms. So yeah. it's, uh, you have to just get the balance right. <laughs> so we've got another question from Hannah along those lines. When you're on a whole cocktail of medications, how do you know what impact these medications are having on your HRT? For example, thyroxine or steroids, can they have an effect on the effectiveness of your HRT or does this need to be taken into consideration as part of your dose? Yes, we certainly look at what other medications people are on and some medications can interact with HRT. And that's another reason why we like to give estrogen through the skin, because then that the interactions are far less likely. There are still some things that interact. 
Um, and often we will do more frequent blood tests if someone is just starting HRT and they're they're on, they've got they're on thyroxine treatment. We'll we'll keep a closer eye on the levels. So yes, it's an individual thing with depending on the medication, but we, we do have to be aware of what people are on and also how well they absorb things. So mm. um, again, someone might have lots of bowel symptoms as a as a as a side effect of treatment, or they might have. Crohn's or some other condition that gives them, you know, diarrhea, something like that. And then we'd want to make sure, again, with estrogen through the skin, they'd be absorbing that fine. But we might have to think about how they take their progesterone. Um, if they're on oral progesterone, they might be better taking it in a different way to make sure that they actually absorb it properly. So, yeah, we have to look at everybody with all, all their different medical conditions, what else they're on. Um, and some of the anti-epileptic medication we have to be careful with because the last thing we want to do is make the and the epileptic medication less effective so that somebody ha ha has an epileptic fit. So, yeah, we have to. And that, again, sometimes is when a, a GP might want to get advice from menopause specialists about interactions between between medications. Yeah. And with the, what hopefully we have is this, certainly I do in my clinic, an advice and guidance um, system. So you may not need to go and actually see a menopause specialist, but the GP might just have a few questions about what's safe and what dose is safe. And they can just write a letter to the menopause specialist and just get some advice back. And then they can do the treatment for Ooh. the patient. Which obviously speeds things up. So we have yeah. advice and guidance for lots of different specialities now. And, and most menopause clinics run that as well. Yeah, that's really good to know. And with steroids, because so many um, of us in the in the shine community um, are are on them um, quite frequently. Um, do you know of any interactions with them and HRT? I think if the, if the eastern through the skin, it should be all right. Okay. But yes, you'd be you'd be just monitoring and making sure that they're, they're feeling okay. But it shouldn't be a problem. Great to know. Lovely. Um, and so the other big question that was asked in many different ways is where has my libido gone? Like, what happens to it? Like, I mean, I know that we've talked a little bit about the kind of the physical, like what's going on in the vagina, things getting dry, but even the mental idea of sex just seems to be such a, you know, for some people, such a distant memory, even if they absolutely love their partner. And in the last episode, Abby was talking about her partner, who sounds amazing. I fell in love with him while she was talking about him. And, um, you know, clearly, like, there's there is that intimacy, there's that love. And what happens to the libido then if our brain isn't sort of tuned into that sexual connection and can it come back so yes so i speak to hundreds of women um uh, in, in my menopause clinics and i always ask about libido and i think one woman has said oh no it's fine and uh, she'd had a new partner uh. Uh, so, um, so it is unfortunately it is a very 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 common problem um when people are, are perimenopausal and many menopausal and often we don't often in a non-menopause clinic situation we don't ask people and probably people don't volunteer it um mm. so because um so yeah there's there's lots of different things that go into libido 
So, yes, as you mentioned, if, if sex is painful, which it can get really painful if you're getting this, we, we call it the genitourinary syndrome of the menopause now. So this is the, the vaginal, the vulval and the urinary symptoms. You know, women say having sex is like having razor blades yeah. uh, inserted. I mean, it can be incredibly painful. Um, and of course, that's going to make who in their right mind would even contemplate having sex. So that is um, one thing which we can do something about for most people. So that's good. Um so that's sorting out that problem. Obviously, yeah, you meant relationship problems can be an issue, but often aren't. Um, and just if you're if you're tired or pissed off with your partner because they've done something annoying, or you've got teenage children downstairs, or you you just had a row, or you or your body image, if you're feeling you're not feeling like you used to, or you're you're aware of your 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 scars and your your mastectomy or whatever, you know, or your colostomy bag, you know. Often some people find it takes a while for them to get used to their new body and, and get, get body confidence back. But then there's the hormones. And yeah, hormones are really important in, in, in our sexual desire. Um, and so, and estrogen actually is is one of the most important hormones. Testosterone to lesser to some extent in some people, but estrogen is the most important hormone in, in, in that way. And a lot of women, yeah, they don't, there's two kind of, main sort of divisions in 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 the lack of libido if if it's so so one is the don't really want to have sex would much rather have a cup of tea Mm -hmm. um and bed you know just not interested but if it's initiated and once you once you get going it's okay and actually it's fine and you quite enjoy it in the end now that is considered to be kind of normal uh when you're menopausal but this is other just completely feeling dead just sort of the last thing you want to do have sex you know you if you have to have sex you have it but it's you just don't feel anything you don't have much sensation you don't have orgasm or you, your orgasm is just like a little flutter instead of what it used to be like you know that that that's that kind of um uh feeling you know that can some can be helped with with hormones so that's the, the estrogen and then possibly the testosterone but then i think it's also important to say to people that you know you sex doesn't have to be standard penetrative sex you know i think you know if some people if they are very sore uncomfortable or got you know parts of their body that are painful or don't work well you know you can have sex in other ways and still sort of be with your partner and have good times together and 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 show your love for each other i mean a lot of women the trouble is what happens is a lot of women um because they're desperate want sex they don't want to give their husband a peck on the cheek or they don't want to give him a hug because they're worried that their partner's going to say, oh, yeah, actually, it's sex time. And, you know, and, and then try and initiate sex, which is the last thing they want. So women kind of withdraw completely from the physical side of the relationship, which which then, you know, can, can be difficult for both both sides. So, um, you know, sometimes psycho- psychosexual counselling can really help um, just people understand where, the, you know, what their partner's feeling, where they're they're feeling. Um but you know, if you if you if you're having a very low libido and you you can have HRT, then estrogen can help, and then adding testosterone later on can help too. It's is psychosexual counselling available in the NHS? Because some yes, it is, and it's not that easy to find. I think, and it's better in some areas than others. But in some areas, there it is. Um, there used to be. Uh, <laughs> um, as I say, I can't speak for individual sure. areas because it depends what's commissioned in, in each area. But but it might but be some, worth asking. Yeah, it would be worth asking and just finding out whether you can get a referral um, if that's if that's something you would like to pursue. But if if everything in you know, a relationship is fantastic and 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 you used to love sex and everything. Everything it doesn't sex doesn't hurt. Everything else is fine, but you just 
feel numb inside, um, uh, then HRT can certainly help that. Yeah. And I've had that experience of having an orgasm and going, what was that? That was nothing. Like, oh, yeah. it was like the saddest thing ever. If there was like a drooping sound effect, like a, I can't even do a good drooping sound effect. But like it was it was that sad um, yeah. in the yeah. beginning. Um, it did get better, but um, took a took a long time. Um mm. But yeah, that is something that you're like, yeah, you know, when you're already going through so much, you want to have some pleasure. And Absolutely. And we've talked about sort of just local estrogen using um, very low doses of estrogen inside the vagina, which can help plump up the vulval tissues and go through the bladder and makes the bladder wall, wall stronger and less prone to infection. Um, but also women can benefit from some local estrogen cream on the outside, on the vulva, um, because if some people, if you have a look, if, you, if you're going through the menopause and you actually have a look at your vulva with a mirror, which actually we recommend people do now. And again, just to check check for changes. But often women are shocked to find that things are shrunk mm-hmm. and that the labia is shrunk down and everything is just less and, and the clitoris can sort of shrink in and become smaller. Um, and, and it can also become sore and, and, and dry and itchy and split easily when you have sex. But if you are having vulval symptoms, you can actually ask for some estrogen cream or gel um, just with a finger. You just sort of rub it round the entrance to the vagina and sort of round where the wee comes out if you're getting urinary problems. And you can pop it round your, your, your clitoris as well. Um, and, and it can sort of plump all that area up a bit as well. That that can help a bit. And would you recommend vaginal moisturisers? If, if people need it. So um, as it... The, the, the key is for most people is vaginal estrogen. So once you start getting that dry, vaginal dryness, itching, soreness, vulval itching, recurrent UTIs, if you don't treat that, that is only going to get worse with time. So for almost everybody can have local vaginal estrogen. And if, you, if your GP is worried about whether it's safe for you, they can ask the oncologist or ask, ask the medical specialist. But really, we are, we are very happy that the dose is so small and it's not really absorbed into the bloodstream. A few people get sort of um, estrogen-like side effects just at the beginning when the vaginal walls are really thin and you pop in your little tablet or your pessary. Um, just for the first few weeks, a little bit can get into circulation just because the, the walls are so thin. But once the vaginal walls have thickened up again and gone back to normal, you don't absorb that vaginal estrogen anywhere else. So it is quite safe. Um, and then most GPs know about vaginal estrogen, but a lot of them don't know that you can also pop it on, on the on the outside as well. Um, so it's definitely worth doing that. So, But if you still find, sorry, that if you still find that things are dry, yes, you can also use vaginal moisturiser as well. Lovely. And it was actually you that um, introduced me to E-string, which yeah. is, a, <laughs> it's like a, a circle because faffing around with creams and stuff is so tricky. Like, just to remember doing that and how many times this week have I done it and, you know, trying to coordinate that with potentially having sex and like, um, yeah, so it's a, and and I feel like I even like was at a pharmacy and they didn't know what it was. I feel like so many places or so many people I've spoken to have never heard of it and I hadn't until you mentioned it. Um, But it just pops up it's like a plastic circle like soft that pops up inside and stays there for three months Um, absolutely i'm always going on about the e-string always 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's silicon and it's very squishy and it's much smaller than a, than a pessary um, that you that you might have heard of. Um, yeah, and you you can put it in yourself, but if you're worried about putting it in the first time, a doctor can put it in for you. Um, but then you you leave it in for three months. You have to remember when to change it mm-hmm. in three months. Um, and then you fish it out and put a new one in. So yes, it avoids that faffing around with applicators and putting stuff in and remembering, as you say, when they've done it. And you know, often you're tired when, you, when you're going to bed at night, you don't feel like faffing around and washing your hands and then faffing around and washing your hands again. <laughs> um, so yeah, the string is great and you can it can sit there. You can you don't have to take it out when you're having sex. So you, if you can, if you want to, but you don't have to. And it's it's a very easy way of getting estrogen vaginally and as it goes through the bladder. And then some people need a bit of gel or cream on the outside as well but lots of people don't but yeah e-string so that's e-s-t-r-i-n-g and lots of um gps haven't heard of it yet so yeah educate them because it, it, it is a fantastic way of getting long term. because especially you know people are going to have to be on e-string forever because mm-hmm. um, if you're not going on hrt you've got to have the local e-string forever because otherwise your symptoms will come back within a month or two um, and if you if you do go on HRT, about twenty percent of women on HRT also need local estrogen as well because they need something just right where it's needed. But but then obviously eighty percent of women on HRT don't need local estrogen, so it, that's another variable thing. There are so many variables. I'm so glad that we had your expertise in kind of guiding us through what's possible, what to ask for, where to look. So that was the British Menopause Society um, page to find out if there's a menopause clinic in your area. And even maybe to mention if a GP is like, oh, I don't know, um, saying, well, perhaps you could even write to them, you know, and ask them. Um, You know, it's just nice to have a few things in the back pocket and and know that you can even ask about psychosexual um, counselling. Because I think a lot of this is like knowing what to even yeah, ask for. And I, I didn't know that there were nurses that specialised in vaginal rejuvenation and, you know, um, dilator therapy. And, you know, actually, I think prioritising what you are going through and that people that haven't been through cancer are empowering themselves to go, no, actually, I would like my life to be a bit easier and take the things that would help me. Um, And I think that many of us have felt a bit like the whole menopause thing has been really minimized. And so even asking about it feels kind of hard and you don't want to ask the doctor for anything more you know you just want to get out of there like no more questions um so I think this has just been really really useful in terms of knowing what to ask for and then knowing that if you do get HRT that it can it's a process um of adjustment and tweaking and so if you can get to a menopause clinic that's ideal if you are going to start talking to the gp if you've got a choice of gps ask the receptionist who's got the most experience in women's Mm. health is there there, there anyone who's done extra menopause training and the receptionist will often know because there may well be one person who knows a lot more than the other doctors and obviously Mm -hmm. it's best to start with them and then if they don't know they can hopefully ask a menopause clinic or or ask your oncologist if, if they're not sure uh, what to do. So there are various different paths. I know it's difficult to talk to a GP at the moment because we're all so busy. But you know, it is worth uh, it is worth persevering. And and a lot of GP practices have e consult now, where you can um, you can email in with your your questions. You fill in a form and email in, and that's often quite a good way to get the ball rolling with your GP if you can't get through on the phone. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Juliet Balfour. This has been a pleasure. It always is talking to you. And thank you so much for sharing this with um, everyone in Shine and everyone listening to the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. And if you have questions, if you want to share what's going on in your menopause, Shine actually has a closed menopause group um, on Facebook. So find us at shinecancersupport.org. Find out what we've got going on. You might even be able to see um, Dr. Balfour's previous presentation as part of um, the Shine conference. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jane Gilbert, who also specializes in women's sexual health and menopause. And she'll be sharing lots about what to do when you can't have HRT. So we'll be delving even more into the lifestyle. So if you want to know more about the lifestyle options, um, non-hormonal options, tune into the next episode. Until then, bye. Bye.